Got two timers going on today. Keep me in line. Well, good morning, church. My name is Andrew Faulkner. If you're visiting us today, it's my honor and pleasure to fill in for Pastor Trey as he was traveling this past week. Um, we're going to kind of pivot and do something that's a little different than what we're accustomed to going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Uh, this morning, I'll be doing a, a doctrinal or a thematic exposition of Scripture, drawing from multiple passages as we address a particular doctrine or subject. And this morning, that's going to be on discipleship. So the title of my message this morning is Teach All That I Have Commanded You, an Introduction to Discipleship. And so if you would, please turn to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. That will be our platform text for which we launch, because this is the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ to the church to disciple the nations. So let's read it, and then we'll get right into it. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for great weather. Uh, we thank you for this assembly of saints. Pray that your word would go forth, that it would challenge us and transform our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of observations of this particular passage as we are launching into the subject of discipleship. Number one is that like Moses on Mount Sinai, the mediator of the Old Covenant to Israel, God's nation on earth in the Old Testament, now a greater Moses, the lawgiver himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaks not like Moses who came down the mountain, but brings his disciples up the mountain to commission them as ambassadors and heralds of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is the mediator between God and man, the God-man, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, and of the new covenant, which is in his blood. But having risen three days later in his glorified state, and before his ascension, he commissions his disciples. And because he's accomplished all of redemption, according to John 19.30, he is the enjoining of heaven and earth in himself, and according to Philippians 2, 9 and 10, the Father has given him all authority, all dominion, and all the kingdoms of the world. But in this passage, like I said, called the Great Commission, we have different imperatives, that is, commands, that are found in the dependent clauses. For example, go, make disciples, baptizing, and teaching to observe his commands. So for our purposes this morning, we're going to narrow in into that last clause, which of course is Jesus' commands, uh, to teach all of Jesus' commands with all authority, and that he has commissioned the church, that is the ecclesia, the called out ones, set apart as God's people on earth to make disciples of all nations and to teach them obedience to Jesus' commands. It's interesting the word observe here. Uh, some Bibles have it obey, some have it keep, um, all of which are legitimate translations. It's interesting that the word itself for teaching uh, comes to us in English in the word didactic. And so when we look at the issue of discipleship, what we're doing is in fact teaching or didactically teaching, educationally, and instructing. And in the most technical sense, it is doctrinal and moral in function. So our question this morning is, what does it mean to be a disciple, making disciples? That's the question. What does it mean to be a disciple, making disciples? So first we have to define what a disciple is and how do you become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Next, we want to seek what the Spirit says in the written word about his design for discipleship. And finally, what is its destination, its goal, its end of discipleship? And those are our headings. Discipleship defined, discipleship designed, and discipleship destination. So to begin, discipleship defined, the word in Greek, which we translate in English, disciple, methetes, the noun identifying someone as a disciple, can mean learner or student, someone who follows someone else's teaching and lifestyle. Think of an apprenticeship. In the ancient world, unlike today, 
it was much more common for you to do whatever your father did. It was a natural apprenticeship. One of the reasons why childbearing was so important in the ancient world was that that was your workforce. You were continuing the family business in some sense. So like Joseph, Jesus was a carpenter in his earthly life before his earthly ministry. And so in the ancient world, something that we've kind of lost with uh, emphasis on education in the secular sense is, is that we think of an apprenticeship as, as that's how you learned how to work. And so when we look at discipleship, that's precisely what we're looking at, is an apprenticeship. We're following Christ and his teachings. And so uh, it's interesting that the first recorded instance of disciples of Jesus being called Christians in particular is in Acts 11.26 as a title assigned really by those outside of the church to describe those in the church who were followers, who were disciples of Christ. And so we want to look at some passages that help us define uh, certain peculiarities about discipleship or being a disciple and how to become a disciple. So if you would turn to Matthew 16, just a couple pages back, Matthew 16. And while you're turning there, I just want to summarize, due, due to time's sake, just want to summarize that in each of the instances that we have a recording of a disciple, Matthew, John, Peter, um, being called to follow Christ, it's interesting that he's preaching the word or he's teaching. For example, in Luke 5, uh, he's teaching the word of God. He gets in the boat. He's teaching the word of God. He performs a sign. And again, Pastor Trey's already gone through this in John. Signs were arrows saying, believe this prophet. Believe his message. He's come from God. And so Jesus performs a sign in which even though they couldn't catch a single fish all night, Peter and John, the son of Zebedee, who was the apostle John, uh, was able to fill the boat completely, not one, but two boats full of fish, and they began to sink. Jesus performed a sign. Um, and so Peter's response, I am a sinner, get away from me. I can't even be in your presence. And so what's interesting is Jesus' response to Peter's confession, I am a sinner, I don't even deserve to be in your presence because he immediately recognizes who Jesus is. He has authority over the creation. There, he's sent from God. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it's interesting at the end of that text, it says, he and John left everything and followed him. And so the first point about discipleship is it's a leaving of your former life to follow Jesus Christ. That's discipleship in essence. It's to leave your former life and to follow Christ. And so Matthew 16, starting verse 13 through 18, I want to summarize uh, briefly part of that leaving the former life and following Christ. Because there's content involved. Being a disciple, again, is about teaching teaching all that Christ has commanded. And so there's content that must be believed to be a disciple. Starting in verse 13 of Matthew 16, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, one of the points or one of the dimensions of discipleship that is critical for us to understand is in this personal teaching moment between Jesus and his disciples, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? What's the rumor on the street? What are people saying as he's already well into his earthly ministry? And, and all the rumors are wrong. John the Baptist is dead, so he can't be him. He's not Elijah reincarnated. That's not a Christian idea. We believe in the resurrection. And he's uh, already told them that John the Baptist 
is the spirit of Elijah who's come. And so he's already interpreted that John the Baptist is the Elijah. Okay? So it can't be any of those people. So he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And he's looking to see if they're getting it. He's teaching them. He's, he's evaluating them. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It is a right confession of who Jesus is. And so Jesus tells Peter that he's blessed. But he, not only is he blessed, but he tells him exactly why he has that confession. He says that it's the Father from heaven who revealed this to him. Not flesh and blood, not human rationality, not blood lineage, but because God who gives faith as a gift so that no one can boast from human effort or human achievement. And so Jesus says in John fourteen six, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. Yet it's the Father who brought Peter into the right confession. So immediately we're struck by a Trinitarian nature of salvation, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work in harmony to bring in disciples of Jesus Christ by giving the gift of faith and having a right confession of who Jesus is. Do you see that? So this demonstrates a personal following from Peter and that Jesus is the architecture architect and builder of the church and he builds the church with the gospel it's interesting go back to matthew 16 let's start in verse 18 this is exactly after jesus says it's the father who revealed this not flesh and blood and i tell you you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it it's interesting because Peter, or in Greek, Petros, means rock. So Jesus, in a play on words, is saying, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But what's interesting is at the end, you'll notice the word it. So it changes from a personal pronoun to an impersonal It. It is not Peter that the church is built on, but his confession of who Christ is. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that the church is built on. He is not the first pope. That is not what Jesus is saying. It is on the apostolic witness of the New Testament that the New Testament church is built on, and nothing else. Romans 1, 1 through 6. That's our next passage. Great passage. In fact, uh, if you haven't already, I highly recommend uh, a book called The Missing Gospel of Modern Christianity. If you haven't read it yet, it's entirely based on Romans 1, 1 through 5. It's a fantastic book. And so let us read and make observations. Now I want to say Romans 1, 1 through 5 is a summary of the gospel. It's not every single exhaustive point. And like today, we're not going to make every exhaustive point about discipleship. But it is a summary which launches the book of Romans, which is Paul's Magna Carta. It is the most exhaustive epistle he writes to the church at Rome about all the glories and the mysteries and the, and the mercies of God in the gospel. And so when we look at the book of Romans, it starts with the gospel. It's an explanation of the gospel, and it ends with the gospel. That's a wonderful book. Romans 1, 1 through 5, let's read it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Do you see the connection that Paul is making to the, com to the commission? Do you see that it's on the gospel going forth to the nations 
that he's referencing, he's trying to bring forward the attention of the Great Commission, and in fact serves as the basis for his apostleship, is the commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So some observations. Number one, says that the gospel is God's gospel. It's not man's gospel. It's not man's message. It's God's message of salvation to the earth. Number two, that it was promised beforehand in the Old Testament scriptures concerning Jesus, the son of God, a descendant of King David, in fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Not only that, but resurrected from the dead with the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, which he calls the spirit of holiness. So again, we're struck with a Trinitarian nature of salvation, a Trinitarian gospel that involves all of God. And also, Jesus is called our Lord. That is, kurios, meaning master. Fundamental to discipleship and belief in the gospel is you're not your own. Jesus is Lord. And when he's Lord, he's Lord of everything. To borrow from Abraham Kuyper, theologian I like, there's not one square inch of all the earth which he does not say, mine. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, because he's Lord... This is a summary of the gospel predicted in the old, but brought to fruition and fulfillment in the new. And it is through this gospel of grace, the grace of God, comes to us, but for what purpose? What is it that this gospel does in the heart? Verse 5 says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ among the Gentiles, among who you and I are called in Christ Jesus. The obedience of faith, not the obedience of the flesh, not the obedience of law apart from the divine work of grace, the obedience of faith. And so our belief, our confession, our obedience is simply a proper human response to the efficacious work of God in the human heart. It's all of grace, all of mercy. And it's by faith. It's by faith. Not by works of the law. No man will be justified. Paul tells us, Galatians 2. It's by faith. It's the fruit. God the Holy Spirit in regeneration gives the new heart that has the life of God shown in the same way that Paul brings out in 2 Corinthians 4 when he goes back to Genesis 1 and God says, let there be light. He uses that as a historical illustration of exactly What did not exist before in your heart now exists because of the divine work of God where you used to hate God, now you love God. Where you disobeyed, now you obey. And it's by faith. So Paul says, let there be light. 2 Corinthians 4. God calls into existence what did not exist in the human heart. That is a true, genuine affection, accepting of the truth, believing the truth, personal faith in the truth, which is Jesus and submission to him. One last passage, Acts chapter 2, two pages forward. Acts chapter 2. Backwards, rather. Need to go back to VBS. Acts chapter 2. Now, we don't have time to go through all of Acts chapter 2, obviously, but to summarize, it's Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. You remember that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says so in John's Gospel, and he is sacrificed on the Passover. Uh, Again, just driving in that typology that we've gone through in John's Gospel. But it's Pentecost 50 days later, after Passover. And uh, Jesus, of course, is the once-for-all sin, uh, sacrifice for sin at Passover and the Lamb of God. But the Apostle Peter preaches the same gospel. And it's the first public gospel sermon after the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. In fact, Pentecost happens during the Festival of Weeks, which is a celebration of the law given to Moses. And on that day, the Spirit comes in fulfillment of Joel 2. So what's interesting is uh, the audience in Jerusalem, a great many who came for that festival, hear the message of Peter... And I want us to read, what was their response? 
Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. And we'll read through verse 38 and a couple verses out of 41 and 42. So Acts 2, 37. Now when they heard this, that is the message of the gospel that, G, uh, that Peter just preached. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, what shall we do? They were pierced to the heart, cut to the heart. and the deepest part of their personhood to the soul, they were addressed with the gospel of Jesus Christ that Peter is preaching by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And the gospel penetrated their stony and impenetrable hearts, and they asked, what should we do? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. and Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people were added that day to that infant church in Jerusalem. They were convicted to the heart. They received the word which is the way of saying is that they accepted and believed by faith in Christ as the Messiah, and they obeyed in baptism. You remember last week. If you haven't been baptized and you claim to be a disciple, you're in disobedience. You ought to be baptized. So talk to one of your elders today. <laughs> so uh, we also want to look at what did they do after that? After they were told to repent and believe and be baptized, Luke tells us more what the convert, new converts did. What did they devote themselves to? How did they demonstrate their discipleship, you could say? Well, Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, so, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's what they gave themselves to. That's what we give ourselves to. That's why we're here. You see that? So disciples of Jesus devote themselves, a whole person devotion, to God's word, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. Fellowship in what? With other saints, with other disciples. And so immediately we're struck with, it's not just an individual, but it's an individual who comes to salvation, comes to the knowledge of their sin, who believes upon Christ for salvation, and they're immediately grafted into a community of other disciples who've been saved also. Okay, And so in summary, we can look and see that there's a content of the message. There's a divine call to follow Christ. There's a divine gift of faith given sovereignly by our Lord to his people. The gospel that belongs to God, and Paul says in Romans 1.16, is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So for all people. And obeying by faith with a whole devotion to the word of God with the people of God, to the glory of God. So now that we've defined sufficiently, I think, discipleship, how do you become a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Discipleship designed. Turn to uh, Ephesians 5, verse 25. And so we're going to look at kind of two main areas. And, and I want to introduce it by saying these are two interrelated, interpersonal, incorporated spheres for where discipleship primarily happens. Okay? Two interrelated, interpersonal, incorporated spheres for which discipleship occur. This is part of God's design. So Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. Most of us are probably pretty familiar with that passage. We'll go ahead and read it. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, or water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's a mystery that reveals the character, the nature, the substance of the whole person devotion of Christ to the church and the submission of the church to Christ that is reflected in this visible earthly sign, marriage. Marriage is a living illustration teaching that relationship between Christ and the church. And so the marriage covenant is a visible earthly external sign that teaches, it teaches albeit imperfectly because of sinners, but nonetheless teaches what singular devotion and sacrificial love and care there is between a husband and wife and Christ in the church. Paul begins, verse 25, exhorting husbands to love their wives in the same way that Jesus loves the bride, the church, by giving himself up for her. But notice in verse 26, the personal noun, husbands, he's addressing husbands, But in verse 26, the personal noun subtly changes subject from the husband to Christ, describing what Jesus does to the church. Namely, that he cleanses her with the washing of the word, sanctifying her to present the church as holy and blameless without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Then verse 28, it transitions back to the husband. You see that? Verse 28. So again, we look read real quick. It's talking about the washing of the water with the word to present the church as holy without spot or wrinkle. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. In the same way. He's drawing and bringing forward what Jesus does for the church is what husbands should do for their wives. Okay? And so looking at the idea of discipleship and the spheres, the design of God for discipleship, one of those areas is the family government, or what you might call your clan. You belong to a clan. I belong to a clan. It's called Falconer. And so that clan is my clan. And so it's interesting because it shifts from the personal noun of the subject of the husband to the Christ, describing what he does. Verse 28 transitions back to the husband as the subject noun to tell husbands that they should love their wives as their own body. Now, remember what a biblical covenant of marriage is. It is a husband and wife in a one-flesh union united by God. So, the husband is ultimately and finally responsible as the head of his household for the administration of the Word of God as a disciple of Christ being transformed by the Word and discipling his household with the Word. You see that? Necessarily, we can presume that prayer should be accompanied with that, you know, word and prayer, you know, get them all in there. And, uh, and family worship is an integral part and the norm of Scripture, I might say. So, by doing so, the house is discipled and managed in a godly way. Husbands, we must have the humility to be corrected by the word. We don't have it all figured out. That's okay. Be corrected by the word. But also not just in our own study, but with the help of our wife. Do you see that in Christ, Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there's no longer male and female, no longer slaves and masters, Scythians or barbarians, but we're all in Christ. So while my wife and I have distinct roles and responsibilities, we are a one flesh union. We're one house with one name. And we're spiritually equal in Christ, despite those roles, or in addition to those roles. So, the quality of the household as a unit will never surpass the example and discipleship of the husband. Keep that in mind. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. <laughs> Just a couple pages over, or one page over. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Briefly read that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's interesting, children, if you're a child, should be listening with both ears. 
that you're directly addressed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.1. And that the worldview of the Bible is very straightforward, that there's an emphasis on children, raising children. It's a duty of parents to raise children in the truth, to know God and love him. That's consistent. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 8. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Cross-reference was Colossians 2, which we already went through in our last study in Colossians, Colossians 2. So there is a role in discipleship in the home for parents to children. You see that design. And so it's interesting that the Proverbs, going back to the Old Testament to the wisdom literature, several places, Proverbs 1, for example, uh, Proverbs 6, um, Proverbs 2, uh, all of them begin, interesting, using the personification of parents teaching their children. Son, obey the commandments of your father and the teaching of your mother. So the personification of parents to children is there in the wisdom literature. There is a passing on of the truth. There's a passing on in the form of discipleship in the home. And so uh, you might ask, what is the benefit of treating your children as disciples of the parents? What is the significance of being the primary disciple maker of your children? Turn with me to 2 Timothy, and we'll have the answer. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Starting in verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Speaking of Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy. Actually, sorry, verse uh, 14. Yeah, verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So then parenting in the form of discipleship, is an evangelistic enterprise. And that's true, Old Testament, New Testament. Parents have a direct role in discipling, training up their children to love God, and with the gospel, they become disciples of Christ. They become believers. And so, I just want to say that this is the context for which he gives, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching uh, or for reproof, correction, and, and, and teaching, uh, training in righteousness. That's the very goal of discipleship, is to learn righteousness and to reflect Christ. And so repentance from the old self, which needs reproof, which needs correction and conviction to the new man and the new way of life in righteousness and holiness through the teaching of the word. It's been said by men wiser than myself, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And it starts in the home. So, parents, think about this. And it's something that keeps me up. Through your marriage and parenting, your priorities, your activities, your lifestyle, your conduct and speech, your values are indoctrinating and educating your children what to think and believe about God and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a high calling. It's a high calling. We ought to pray more, shouldn't we? I know. I need to. Number two, the congregation. So you belong to a clan, and if you're here, you belong to a congregation, what you might call the church government. So Ephesians 4, going back to Ephesians Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to kind of camp out here for most of the rest of our time. So Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16, brings into sharp focus the design of discipleship within the church, called out of the world to be God's people on earth, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and Paul tells Timothy is the pillar and buttress of the truth. I want to say, as far as the means of discipleship, we're going to see some of those elements uh, as we progress. But before we read this, 
The means of discipleship is the administration of the word, both in its public reading and exposition, what we're doing this morning, which reaches our ears and passes into the mind. The word by itself is authoritative and binds the conscience. But we also have the prayers. Remember Acts 2.42. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers. But prayers, which is our speech towards God, notice that preaching goes in the ear. We speak to God in prayer, which is likened to incense in the old covenant temple, which rises to the Lord. Also, we have the Lord's Supper, which we just recently did. The Lord's Supper, which engages our smell and taste senses to remind us of the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lamb of God, our faithful high priest and mediator of the new covenant, shed in his blood, in his broken body. So now we have four senses engaged. And the last one, baptism, which engages the kinesthetic sensation, that is your feel, your feeling, right? Uh, humans by nature learn two ways, mimicking and feeling, doing. Mimic and doing. That, that's the primary way in which people learn. God knows that because he designed us as people. So he gives us elements in the church for public worship that engages the whole person, engages the whole person. So in baptism, in the context of the church, engages that sensation, the feeling of going down in the water and coming up out of the water as a message precisely of what Jesus did in the gospel, that he died, was buried, and raised. You see that? It's a message. It's teaching. But it's a physical thing. But it's still teaching. So, when we look at this uh, verse, keeping those things in mind, those are things that we do in the church. Um, at the heart of Christian worship, discipleship, sanctification, and evangelism is the word. And the elders are the worship leaders of the church because the Bible is the worship book that defines, directs, and reforms the church. Okay? So let's read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 very quickly I therefore a prisoner of the Lord or for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace there's one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call one Lord one faith one baptism one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're actually going to stop there. I'm going to stop there. Okay? So there are going to be two truths. So we're going to talk about the first part. Um, then we'll talk about the second part. But there's two truths, um, and, and I just want to kind of, uh, if you want, follow with me. Verse 11 talking about this one faith, one body, one baptism, the church, the called out ones set apart from the world. But we have been, each one of us has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift to each and every single disciple, every single person in the church. That is their union with Christ and have true faith and believe the gospel. Uh, their sins have been forgiven and they're going to heaven. have been given a gift, Christ's gift. But he says in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now I'll stop there because we're going to come back to that. But he gives these uh, elements, the, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers. You can use those interchangeably pretty much. Um, what's interesting, Ephesians 2.20 says that the foundation of the church is built on the prophets and apostles and Christ is the cornerstone. He's the one who holds it all together. It's all about Christ. He's the foundation of it all. But the prophets and apostles represent the Old and New Testament. Old and New Testament revelation. And so, I just want to say, there are going to be two truths that must be kept in parallel balance and alignment and should receive equal attention, but sometimes it doesn't. And, and we can improve in that. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. But two truths that go to the overall health and wellness of a local church. There are specific leaders who have been called, gift, equipped, and established to oversee the church as under-shepherds and teachers of God's word. That, that's very clear from the text. 
But these leaders, evangelists and the pastor teacher, the elders, are a plurality. Discipling, exhorting, encouraging one another, and also identifying and discipling new leaders for the ongoing multi-generational continuation of the church. 2 Timothy 2.2. Find and identify those men. Raise them, train them, equip them, prepare them. So, the elders, uh, like I said, are there for that purpose, certainly. But we remember that the church is built on the prophets and apostles, with Christ as the cornerstone. So it's still the word. It's the word which is central. Not any one man. Not any one person. It's the word. So, since Christ is the one who's central, foundation, and holds together these things, what is Christ's purpose, then, for giving specific men called qualified and installed as leaders of the church? Ephesians 4.12. Go back there. Ephesians 4.12. And this is what I want to emphasize. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain, all attain unity to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints in the work of service, the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, that Christ would be full in you. This is the second truth, one that directly concerns us today. You are called saints if you're in Christ. Saints just means holy ones. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. You've been set apart from the world, separated to be God's people, Christ's disciples. But as believers, we need to be equipped with the whole counsel of God. And that's, that's his point. In every area of our life. Now, how does the gospel impact, influence, form, and reform, and transform our mind, our affections, and our will? Uh, will in the obedience of faith uh, before God and men inside and outside the church. These are important questions, but notice what the goal is. The work of service, building up the body, attaining unity, the full knowledge of God, maturity, have all of Christ and to be all in for Christ. You see that? So you are the ministry, but you do the ministry. You see that? It's not just any one person. It's not even just three men. All of us are in it. Now, why is that? Or how is that? So you do the work of service for each other and among each other. You build up the body of Christ. You strive for unity, and you have fellowship with each other. You grow up in the full knowledge of God. You are to become mature in Christ, and you have all you need in Christ and his word, and you are being discipled into the truth of God. You are a disciple equipped so that you can make disciples and disciple others. Perhaps some other texts would be helpful. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, just a couple verses there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 and 6. First Corinthians 12, verse 4 through 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. If you want to skip down to verse 11. All these, that is all these gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As the Spirit wills, as God wills. So, if you're in Christ... You've been given gifts with responsibility. If you're a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, then he has given you spiritual gifts for the service in the church. That is true for every single Christian. So here's the second part of the, or, or here's the part of the second church that needs more time and attention to balance our understanding of, of what the church is, theologically and practically. The psalmist says that you're fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb by our God. When you have were saved and brought into union with the body of Christ, that means that now you have a role and responsibility in that body. There is no such thing as a passive, uninterested, consumer Christian who doesn't serve. 
just your sin and short-sightedness getting in the way. That's it. And so when we look at this uh, idea, this uh, part of discipleship, part of God's design, is every one of us are equal in Christ. Like I said, Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says that. We're all heirs according to the promises to Abraham if we have faith in Christ. Elders are not more important or less important than any one of us who have been given the same spirit and has the same Lord. But we have different roles, different gifts, different responsibilities. That's okay. So, you have something to contribute to the needs of others as those needs come up. Also, just like the family unit, the household, the church, God's consistent. He's not subject due to shadow of change. Uh, His logic is consistent. The same design exists in the household as in the church. There are specific people, men, who are responsible, ultimately, for what happens in the church, just like the father is ultimately responsible of the home, but are not more valuable or less valuable than their wife or the congregation. They just have different roles and responsibilities according to God's design. So, we want to also acknowledge that just like there's a one flesh union in marriage, we are one body in Christ. One body. Not two bodies. One body. There's one people of God through redemptive history. All the saints of the Old Testament united to Christ by faith, and all of us united by faith to Christ. And so the elders are leaders in the church to be respected as spiritual fathers with those roles and responsibilities yet are equal. God's logic doesn't change, but and, and that he's consistent. The word of God, though, is the transcendent authority over all of us. You see that? You see that? So the word of God is the transcendent authority by which all parties are subject to, and Christ is the head of the church. So we reject the Roman Catholic Episcopalian view that demands a rigid hierarchy and false authority invested in a false priesthood that doesn't exist in the New Testament church. It's not real. It's not biblical. So, the elder-led church is not Roman Catholic. We are to reflect Christ, not replace Christ as the church of Christ. You see that? This is another distinction, by the way, between the Old Testament and New Testament. I don't have time to, to get more into it, but quickly, destination. Discipleship, destination. Ephesians 4, 20, and 20, 20 through 24. I'm just going to look briefly at this uh, due to limited time. But Ephesians 4, starting in verse... Actually, I'd like to start in verse 5, verse 1 and 2, and then we'll come back to verse 24, or 20. Um, so Ephesians, make it easy, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's interesting that Paul uses the same language in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be tr- uh, conformed to the world, but be transformed in the renewal of your mind so that you might know the good and perfect pleasing will of God. But he says in verse 1, by the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice. So discipleship involves sacrifice. So as beloved children, we're to imitate God in Christ. Now, it's interesting that the, uh, the word uh, mimetes in Greek, which we transliterate to English, means mimic. Mimic, literally copy. So we're to copy God in Christ. So then rightly we could say that Paul is exhorting us with the command to be mimics of God as beloved children and to walk in love just as Christ did um, by giving himself up. Now all of life is worship before God because we're constantly reflecting and giving honor, praise, glory, thankfulness, love, reverence, holy fear. We're to have the values, concerns, morals, and judgments of God and of Christ and obey by faith. So, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, you don't have to turn there, says that we're to be holy as God is holy, quoting Leviticus. The goal of discipleship is to be like Christ, who is altogether righteous. That's the goal. That's the goal. Now, very briefly, the second point, 
is that this is the first occurrence in the letter to the Ephesians that the adjective of Christ, beloved, used as a noun in Ephesians 1, all the blessings that we have in the beloved, beloved is used there. In this instance, though, the noun that describes Jesus and his relationship with the Heavenly Father is applied to you and to me. So just as the Father loves Christ fully and eternally, he loves us fully and eternally as beloved children in Christ. So, I just want to uh, end that point with saying it's a great comfort and support and encouragement being beloved of God as children because of Jesus Christ, the same divine eternal love that's applied to us. I mean, what, what motivation for holiness that is? That, that's the motivation. We're beloved children. We've been accepted by God. So, how do we do this? How does discipleship happen? How do I become more holy in Christ? How do I mimic Christ? Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 I'll read it. Says, but that is not the way you learned Christ in context to the way the Gentiles live and the foolishness of their mind alienated and hard apart. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you put off the old man, what Jesus demands in Luke 14. You deny self. That's what that means. You deny self, you put off the old man. What Paul says, crucifying the flesh. You put off the old manner of life, the old way of living, your sinful impulses, it's a decisive decision by the power of the Spirit who strengthens you and teaches you Christ from the Word and has given you the mind of Christ. And so, I want to again, we could go into more detail about that, but due to limited time, uh, let me uh, go ahead and wrap up. Also, the church is the training ground for Jesus' disciples, where we learn to put on the new man, the new creature in Christ, the new way of living, not by the old way of the letter, but the new way of the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians. It is a decisive act of the will with an intentionally engaged mind and the accompanying affections for God and others that we choose to obey by faith. For the just live by faith, Romans 1.17. So this is discipleship. Your sanctification, denying the desires of the flesh, and submitting everything to the Lordship of Christ. That is to say, whether I do or don't do something, say something, feel something, think something, participate in something, must be filtered through the gospel and your identity in Christ. Now, I have ten quick points to wrap this up. Some observations about discipleship. Number one, discipleship is intentional, proactive, and comprehensive. Number two, there's no cruise control Christianity. You see that? So, be hot or be cold. Are you in the race or are you out of the race? Are you on or are you off? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. If you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sin and was risen from the dead three days later and is the Lord. Submit your life to him. Follow him. Mimic him. Number three, the Bible is not a self-help manual or a textbook. The Bible is God's worldview in black ink. That's what it is. Sometimes we're guilty of treating it more like a fortune cookie. Number four, the Bible informs, renews, and transforms, correcting and training us to think as new covenant believers with the Holy Spirit. Number five, maybe the problem is not so much we don't know the truth, but we're waiting around for someone to hold our hand. Now, if you're a new believer on the milk, that's okay for a time. But the Bible expects you with the Holy Spirit to move on from elementary doctrine and the elementary things. Maturity in Christ is love for one another. Complaining and demanding is what idolatrous children do. 
taking responsibility and initiative is what adults do. At the root of the issue of discipleship, being discipled, seeking discipleship, listening, being corrected, putting on Christ, asking for help, making time, is about humility and priorities. Number six, we avoid discipleship oftentimes because of hardness of heart, pride, love of self, love of comfort, love of pleasure, self-pity, complaining. We blame shift like Adam and Eve. We're passive. We put the load on others to make our life easier, again, out of self-love and valuing my own time over others and comfort. And we, har- we wonder why hardly anyone is around. You have to take initiative. You have to do it. Number seven, hard words make for soft hearts. Soft words make for hard hearts. It's from Dr. Steve Lawson. The hard words of truth reprove and rebuke so that our rocky soiled hearts are broken up and tilled, prepared then to be filled with the gospel of grace, watered by the word, and grown by the spirit of God, not your flesh, through the ministry of fellow disciples of Jesus Christ in the church who speak the truth in love the way God has designed for you to be shown the error of my way, the way that God's designed for me to be corrected and trained in righteousness to become more like Christ is in the context of a community of disciples. Our elders are here to make us force multipliers to get us to engage in the ministry. It's us who do the ministry as a whole body, one body of Christ. So, and we do it in the normal course of life. It's a community effort grounded in a relational context. Number eight is content-oriented, according to Dr. John MacArthur. Discipleship fundamentally is about the content of the truth, which itself transforms and influences new affections and new actions. Number nine, the essence of discipleship is not complicated or grandiose. We think that discipleship is meeting at a Starbucks one-on-one. That's a context, but that's not the context. The Christian life is discipleship. Do you see that? The Christian life is discipleship. The essence of that is it's a, community, a covenant community of born-again, spirit-and-dwell Christians in the course of ordinary life, day-to-day, with each other, under God's sovereign providences and his lordship, to become like Christ, example Christ, exalt Christ. You see that. Number 10, remember our, our word disciple, learner, student, pupil, apprentice? Also can be defined as one who's rather constantly associated with someone who has a pedagogical reputation or particular set of views. That just means education, doctrine, okay? So, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you remember, you used to be a disciple of the world, following the course and design of Satan, the world in your flesh, right? That's That's who you used to be, believing lies, because you wanted to. But God, rich in mercy and love, with the love which he had in the beloved, brought you into Christ, made you a disciple of Christ. Everyone is being taught, indoctrinated, and immersed, either in lies or the truth. That is, everyone is a disciple either of God or something other than God. So let's wrap up. Let's go ahead and finish. If you are an apprentice of Christ, a student of Christ, immersing yourself in his teaching and applying it, you're a disciple. But what exactly is the apprenticeship for? What does it mean? If you're an apprentice of Christ, you're in the school of holiness and glorifying God. That's what it's for. So let me encourage you with this. Luke 6.40 says that a teacher is never above their master, or a student's never above their master, but in the end will become like their master. At the end of history or in your death, all of the holiness, joy, happiness, love, compassion, which Christ has had for you every moment of your life when you didn't deserve it as an enemy, you will have in your resurrected body. You'll be exactly like it in that sense. So what a great comfort that he's going to continue to change you, mold you, transform you. But he does it in the context of a church of disciples who use their spiritual gifts for one another in serving and sacrificing for each other. So John says, 
John 13 in the upper room. He records the words of our Lord. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for this assembly of saints. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it would uh, inform and transform uh, our hearts and our minds uh, to be more biblical, uh, to be more consistent, um, to, to inflame our desire to, to be on for you, uh, to be in all in for you. Uh, Lord, help us to see and to enjoy those spiritual gifts as we get to uh, be like you, uh, loving one another. Lord, help us to get out of our own way. Help us to uh, enjoy this company of believers and that we would uh, strive to love one another, uh, to serve one another. And Lord, we just thank you for your word, uh, that your word is precious and restores the soul, as the psalmist says. And we just thank you um, that we have this opportunity to continue this in discipleship after the service.